Ciao amici. Welcome to Cinema Italiano, the podcast dedicated to the Italian experience as told by film. Today, we'll be talking about this year's Cinema Italian Style Film Festival. But first, as a couple of news updates, there is a new 4K restoration coming of Mario Monicelli's Risata di Gioia, or The Passionate Thief, a film starring Anna Magnani, Ben Gazzara, and Toto. It'll be coming soon to Virtual Cinema, hosted by Film Forum, and the restoration is presented by Rialto Pictures. Another new film now available on Netflix is Sidney Sibilia's L'Incredibile Storia dell'Isola delle Rose, or Rose Island, starring Elio Germano. This film is based on the true story of engineer Giorgio Rosa and the Republic of Rose Island. As a quick introduction to cinema Italian style, this is a film festival that showcases transcending geographical divisions in time, portraying characters through their daily life, while confronted with the tragedy of civil wars, brutal dictatorships, foreign invasions, and finally, the murderous apocalypse of ISIS. There's a few different figures that we follow throughout the film as recurring stories or vignettes to revisit. Probably the most prominent is that of a young man, maybe a teenager age, who lives in a home with several other children, most of whom appear to be younger. They all sleep in what looks like the living room, but it's unclear if they're all siblings or if they're not related. There's also a woman, not sure if it's his mother or just a mother figure, who seems to take care of them and cooks for them, uh, but there's no adult male present. The recurring action we see from this young man is him going hunting, he gets a large rifle, practices shooting, and he goes out early each morning with the hopes of being picked up by older men who are out going hunting, where he goes to help them, just go along with them. It seems like he's looking for an older male figure in his life that he doesn't have in his day to day. The second scene that we revisit is that at is at a psychiatric ward where there's a play that's being staged and performed by the patients. The play is certainly political in nature. What we see includes film footage on stage with images of violence and destruction depicting the struggles going on within the Middle East. And even the text of the play itself, the words spoken by the actors, is that of self-determination and the reclamation of land and of self. Some of the most moving sequences of the film include those who have been direct victims of the violence of ISIS. There's a particularly memorable and troubling sequence of, of elementary school age kids, and they make drawings highlighting their experiences of trauma and violence from ISIS. These are very disturbing images to see of violence and terror, beheadings, arms severed from their bodies, and from not only from their art, but just hearing the children speak. Years later, they're still living with the stress and the trauma from these experiences. An equally moving moment is, is a woman whose daughter has been kidnapped by ISIS. She plays for us the voicemails on her cell phone of her daughter's cries for help. And though it's a conclusive answer is not given, Unfortunately, we assume the worst because we don't see the daughter there. 
her absence is very strongly felt. In the film's final moments, the young man who wants to be a hunter is woken up early by the mother figure so he can go out and catch up with the hunters. We see him standing out in the field, waiting, but no cars are picking him up, and the very last shot is a close-up of his face, his eyes darting back and forth, but he's looking in vain. Noturno, in English, literally means nocturne, or a musical composition inspired by or meant to evoke the nighttime. They're often tranquil, though they can be dark and introspective in quality. The scenes that we witness, both of recurring characters and of ones that we only see once, transcend nations and languages, and they all reflect people trapped with the ongoing threat of terrorism and repression. Perhaps we can take the film's final moments of the young man waiting for a mentor figure to take him hunting as a cry for help from this ongoing struggle in the seemingly endless night. Noturno was also reminiscent of Gianfranco Rosi's previous feature, Fire at Sea, a documentary focused on the refugee crisis with a lens for southern Italy, showing both the struggles faced by emigrants braving the journey northward from Africa, as well as the perspective of local Italians, whether supportive or resentful of the changing demographics of their region. Up next was the film Asandira, directed by Salvatore Mereu. The official description for this reads, Soaked to the bone in a torrential rain, Constantino tells the story of a suspicious fire and death of his son in this classic detective story set in rural Sardinia. This was possibly my favorite film of all the film of all the movies featured in this year's festival. Asandira is a thematically complex story looking at generational gaps, technology, artificiality, all against the backdrop of agriturismo or agritourism in Sardinia. The story unfolds as Constantino, an elderly farmer, tells the story of what happened in a tragic fire that led to the death of his son Mario. It all started when Mario and his wife Greta, who is German, come to Sardinia to stay with Constantino, the father. At first, Constantino and his daughter-in-law seem to butt heads, almost talking past each other, both due to the language gap, as well as what appears to be Constantino's own stubbornness as an older man whose life is suddenly shaken up by his son and his wife arriving. Over time, they persuade him, or possibly steamroll him, into converting his farm into a tourist destination, with many cottages offering tours of the livestock and more. They take on playing the part of quaint rural farmers, complete with traditional garb and quaint spiels about pastoral life. There's a performative aspect to their transformation of the land and how they engage with one another and then for the tourists. As the story unfolds, things start to spiral out of control as the home Constantino knows becomes unrecognizable after Mario and Greta's manipulation of his land, his home, and his soul. I don't want to spoil what happens, but it's a very twisted, dark take on power dynamics and, and self-preservation. The next movie up is Cosa Sara, or Everything's Gonna Be Alright, directed by Francesco Bruni. This one was another highlight from the year's festival for me. The official description reads, Filmmaker Bruno is struggling. He has recently separated from his wife, his children ignore him, 
and his comedic films aren't funny. When he discovers he has leukemia, secrets from his father's past come to light and lead the family on a tour of rebirth. Personally, I often don't connect with films where the lead character is battling cancer or another serious illness. I frankly find that they're often manipulative and hopeless, transforming the character into a martyr or turning the disease into a death sentence. And I thought that's how this movie was going to be for a while, but then it started to click with me and I found myself very moved by the story by the end. The lead character Bruno, though separated from his wife Anna, maintains a good relationship with her as well as their two children Adele and Tito. As his medical condition grows more serious, his doctor informs him that he will need a, need a stem cell transplant. His two children, as well as his father, are not good fits, but they soon learn of another relative who could be a qualified donor. What I found most enjoyable about this film is that the family dynamic feels authentic and warm. While not perfect, everyone is likable and shows a lot of personality. It was reminiscent of Simone Gonano's Croce e Delizia, An Almost Ordinary Summer, which also had a large, colorful cast of characters. That said, this movie, or the lead character Bruno at least, does seem to have a weird approach to gay people. In one scene, his father tells him that he thought he was sensitive as a child, which adult Bruno interprets as meaning that his father thinks that he's gay. At the same time, Bruno's ex-wife, Anna, has a growing friendship with a female co-worker which Bruno interprets as his ex-wife now becoming a lesbian. All this feels like it's played for laughs, which feels a little funny in 2020, but it could be something is lost in translation. What the film does get right, though, is through its portrayal of hope and optimism in the face of serious illness. Like I mentioned, a lot of movies dealing with cancer often feel doom and gloom, also surprising, again, given that cancer survival rates continue to grow through the years, even if their filmic portrayals don't seem to think so. The uplifting ending is all the more moving as it portrays Bruno, a man experiencing changing family dynamics. He continues to grow his own purview beyond his past life and familial structure to newfound friendships, relationships, and possibilities. The next film is Padre Nostro, or Our Father, directed by Claudio Noce. The official description is, set in 1976 Rome, Padre Nostro is an intimate and stirring rendering of trauma and its enduring, and its enduring aftermath, loosely based on the director's own childhood experience. This is also notable for being the winner for Best Actor at the Venice Film Festival this year for Pier Francesco Favino. Padre Nostro is told from the point of view of Valerio, a young boy, and two major figures in his life, his father Alonso and his slightly older friend Christian. One day, the father, Alonso, is shot right in front of their house. His wife goes to stay with him in the hospital, leaving young Valerio alone for days. When she does return, she refuses to tell her son what happened or let him watch the news on television. The very day that Alonso does return home, Valerio, the son, sees a gun in his briefcase. Shortly after, a slightly older boy, maybe a teenager, 
named Christian appears in Valerio's life. He's like an older brother figure, taking Valerio around town and showing him a lot of affection when his parents are being so distant. Valerio's parents decide to go to Calabria to Alonso's childhood home. While they're there, Alonso is abruptly called back to return to Rome, and shortly thereafter, Christian appears in Calabria, very displaced from Rome where he appears to live. The vibe now is somewhat different than when they were back home though. Christian won't play with Valle as much and he's acting sarcastic and snarky to him. Alonso returns a few days later, though he's a bit shaken and more paranoid than when he had left. At one point when the family's driving to the beach, he suddenly has the car stopped and they continue the rest of the journey on foot, sneaking through the forest. It's through this new setting where Alonso and Christian are together at once, as the two male figures in Valle's life, that this film becomes its most interesting. On the one hand, they're both like father figures to Valerio, as sources of confidence, authority, and respect. Valle looks at both of them with such admiration. And for Christian, being closer to his age, it almost feels more than that, like a childhood crush. With this possibly homoerotic undertone, the tension between Alonso and Christian feels all the more heightened. Are they rivals competing for Valle's respect as two male father figures? Or is Alonso reacting to Valle growing up and possibly finding his first romantic love interest? There follow plot revelations that didn't quite work for me, but I found the character building and sense of place the most compelling aspects of this film. From the meticulously period-specific setting of their Roma apartment, to the timeless sprawling villas and possibilities of Calabria. In fact, the scenes in Calabria were shot with an anamorphic lens to better emphasize the opening up of this world, distinct from the confined interiors of Roma. Padre Nostro balances existing in different places and times just as it balances between its two strong male leads. The thematics might outweigh the substance, but it's a film that still continues to stick with me. Next up is Lachi, or The Ties, directed by Daniele Lucchetti. The official description reads, In his affecting portrait of a marriage in crisis, starring Luigi Locascio and Alba Rohrwacher, Acclaimed filmmaker Daniele Lucchetti has crafted a stirring domestic drama that shifts back and forth through the years. Lachi is about a man and wife who are determined to live together because of their pact, their initial vow of marriage, with the concession that true happiness waits for them in another life. Similar to Padre Nostro, it's a film that sweeps between places as well as time, going from the 1980s, when the kids and the family are younger, up to the present when the children are adults and the parents, of course, are much older. In fact, the family of four are portrayed by different actors in each generation, rather than using makeup on the same actor. What's particularly strong about this film is how it shifts not only perspectives, but also tones as who we're with and the point of view changes. Interior monologues from the husband and wife reflect their fears, desires, and convictions as they navigate infidelity, unhappiness, and a stubborn determination to stay together, even if it's rationally not meant to be. A couple months ago, I participated in a virtual Q&A session with director Daniel Lucchetti about this film. 
I asked if there were any themes in Lachi that he had also explored in earlier work, such as family dynamics, as in Mio fratello e figlio unico, or my brother is an only child. Lucchetti replied that prior to Mio fratello, he was known more as a political director, and that that was his first film focused on the family. Lucchetti also said that he sees the family merely as text, acting as a microcosm of politics, history, and geography. The next film up is Volevo Nascondermi, or Hidden Away, directed by Giorgio Duriti. The title literally reads as I Wanted to Hide, and is a biopic on Antonio Ligabue, an artist from the Naive movement. The description reads, This biography on revolutionary painter Antonio Ligabue boasts an emotive and dramatic tension which is fully channeled into Elio Germano's terrific Berlin Film Festival award-winning performance. To be honest, I struggled with this film. I often have a hard time with biopics, and this one in particular didn't seem to get inside the head of its subject, always looking at him from an outsider's gaze. Self-indulgently, I could argue that this is a meta-device on the inherent fallibility of biopics, that no film can possibly explain or understand a person, which is one of the shattering breakthroughs of Citizen Kane, though it might be a stretch to say this movie was going for that. Anyway, it's a somewhat standard biography following Antonio, or Tony, throughout the years, from an abusive adoptive childhood to adulthood, being taken in by a kind young man and mother to his growing reputation and success. Tony is portrayed as having mental disabilities of some kind, possibly due to his childhood trauma, and that he has a difficult time connecting with others. This all is further exacerbated by a near-constant mockery or attacks unto him, whether through authority figures in school or townspeople as he experiences in, a, in his adulthood. The film's title, Hidden Away, reflects his constant state of being out of sync or that the world isn't wide enough to have room for him. He is ridiculed early on for his paintings of subjects like tigers and roosters, though as his success grows, his unique style and perspective are the very qualities that he brings to his art. Up next is Li Uomini di Oro, or Golden Men, directed by Vincenzo Alfieri. The official description reads, A notorious 1990s armored car heist in its aftermath is viewed from multiple perspectives. Drivers, ex-boxers, go-go dancers, in this slick, non-linear crime thriller based on the wild true story that set Italy ablaze. Like biopics, I'm usually not an action movies kind of guy. Li Uomini di Oro took a while to click with me, though once I could get on its wavelength, I did grow to appreciate it. It's a super slick, blockbuster-style heist movie centered around three men in a heist to steal money from an armored car. The three men are two postal employees, and an ex-boxer turned debt collector, all in their 40s in different states of masculine crisis. The first man we're introduced to, Maroni, believes he's set to retire at age 40, only to learn that he can't and he has to stay working 20 more years before he can retire and live out his years in idyllic Costa Rica. The second man, Maroni's colleague Alice, is a husband and father in a troubled marriage suffering from heart disease and buried in debt. 
He's entangled up with Nicola, the third man, an ex-boxer turned debt collector who works for a loan shark and also owns a bar. They're each middle-aged with something to prove, driven by fear of aging and fear of death, chasing that high in the safety net of the cash bounty. This theme wasn't quite apparent for me for the first third of the film, focusing on Maroni, whose only real goal is to retire young and go to Costa Rica. So it took a while for me to connect with the film, given the higher stakes of the second and third leads. Once the film did click though, the movie became a lot more interesting, even more so as an action heist film starring men who are a little older than you would expect to be doing this kind of thing. It becomes less of a bro-y roller coaster than it is a somewhat pathetic final big swing for these men to cling to one last chance of youth. Up next is La Dea Fortuna, or The Goddess of Fortune, directed by Ferzan Otspetek. The official description reads, Stefano Accorsi and Eduardo Leo are a long-term couple in crisis, who have everything shaken up when their best friend, played by Jasmine Trinka, shows up with children in suitcases in tow. This is a Roman story of love, friendship, and family of all kinds. La Dea Fortuna opens with an engagement party thrown by Alessandro and Arturo, the main couple. They are constantly bickering, and it's frankly hard to feel that they were ever once in love, which is weirdly typical of movies featuring gay couples. But the arrival of their friend Ana Maria and her two children forces them into roles of fatherhood, giving them giving them a newfound sense of purpose and connection. On paper, this description sounds kind of shallow, like the classic trope of a couple in trouble whose problems are somehow are somehow solved once they have a baby. Something about this movie lingers with me, though. In particular, there's a symbol of La Dea Fortuna, or the goddess of fortune. She's a statue mentioned early on by one of the children, Sandro. He describes the goddess as allowing you to keep the one you love by looking at them, shutting your eyes, and letting the picture of them reach down into your heart. Then they will be with you forever. The goddess is actually a real statue in Palestrina, the town Anna Maria is from. In ancient Rome, the Fortuna cult saw the goddess of fortune as a maternal virgin figure from whom came life. It's easy to draw parallels to Anna Maria the single mother with no biological father figure in the picture, as well as to Mary, the mother of God. Mary's Italian name, Maria, is even baked into Anna Maria's name. The thematic ties back to a real ancient locale are also reminiscent of the marriage in crisis from Rossellini's Viaggio all'Italia, as well as the decadent nightlife over the Caracalla Baths in Fellini's La Dolce Vita. It did surprise me that this film won Best Actress at this year's David D. Donatella Awards. Not that Jasmine Trika didn't give a fine performance, but her character isn't given very much screen time and is almost more of a figure or symbol than a three-dimensional character. This is not a criticism of her, but her role just feels very tertiary to the two male leads. The next film up is Il Campione, or The Champion, directed by Leonardo D'Agostini. The description reads, When a hot-headed superstar striker for Roma gets into terrible trouble, his coach forces him to study under the tutelage of a humble history teacher in this intimate, inspirational sports drama out of Italy. 
This feel-good comedy was full of heart and sincerity, while underlining a real-world problem without an easy solution. The central conflict of Il Campione faces not only Italian football players, but really any athletes, rock stars, or young people swept up by fame and fortune without someone guiding them and shaping them into maturity and adulthood. The two lead performances are strong as well, particularly by Andrea Carpenzano as the football player Christian, who's very good at being unlikable before we gain a better understanding of his character and grow to care for him. I also got to interview the director, Leonardo Diagostini, and the film screenwriter, Antonella Latanzi, earlier this year. I'll include a link here in the show notes. Another film featured was Fili, or Kids, directed by Giuseppe Bonito. The description reads, A playful, relatable, uproarious film that constantly pulls the rug out from under you. Kids is a knockout comedy about the pressures of child rearing in an uncertain economic time. Unfortunately, I did not have time to get to see this one during the one-week window of the festival. However, I look forward to seeing it when or if it does come to the United States in the future. So that was a quick rundown of the films featured at this year's Cinema Italian Style Festival. Hopefully some of them will be available in the U.S. in the near future. A couple of them had Amazon Prime logos in the titles, so fingers crossed that these will get worldwide distribution. I want to thank the Seattle International Film Festival for hosting this virtual experience. Like I mentioned, offering these films online makes it easier than ever to get to experience world cinema without the distance or money constraints of seeing them in person. Especially during the holiday season, running from December 10th through the 17th, I know I got to see a lot more of the movies with this virtual option than I would have been able to by seeing them all in person. As always, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And until next time, ciao amici.